Hey guys, welcome to our very first podcast series here on the Bell Shoals Women podcast. We are thrilled to begin our first series with a study called Sheep, the worth of women in the storyline of the Bible. Now this study was written by speaker, author, and great friend to our podcast, April Swears. If you'd like to know more about April, you can find more of her content on her podcast called Her God Speaks or by visiting her webpage at hergodspeaks.com. I am so excited about this study because it's journey through the Bible with our eyes wide open to the value of women. We are gonna explore what is truth and maybe some mistruth we've heard in regard to women and learn how we were created in the image of God and that we are essential to his mission in the world. The Bell Shoals Women podcast proudly presents She with April Swears. Rachel Denhalander is a lawyer and former gymnast. She was the first woman to publicly accuse former Michigan State University and USA Gymnastics Dr. Larry Nasser of sexual assault. She became one of his victims when she was 15. 16 years later, she came forward with her story, which led to hundreds of other women coming forward with similar allegations against him. In her plea for the judge to impose the maximum sentence on Nasser, Den Hollander asked the question, how much is a little girl worth? She went on to answer this question saying, these victims are worth everything. I plead with you to impose the maximum sentence under the plea agreement because everything is what these survivors are worth. The judge later commented that Den Hollander was the bravest person he had ever seen in his courtroom. Now, Rachel is a strong believer in Jesus Christ. She was raised in the church. She is a conservative evangelical And her experience opened her eyes to how little the church has to say about sexual abuse. In her book, What is a Girl Worth?, Rachel exposes the imbalance between the way conservative church leaders treat the issue of women's roles and the way they address sexual abuse. And I think she's right. I wonder if any of you are like me, You've been going to church the whole of your life. You've heard sermons on how to be the Proverbs 31 and Titus 2 woman. The importance of modesty and sexual purity with a tremendous emphasis on not causing your brother to stumble. You've learned what it means for wives to submit to their husbands and who can hold what positions in the church. Those sermons have been preached and preached and preached some more. Do you know what I have never heard a sermon on? Not once in my entire life sitting under good, solid preaching. I have never heard a sermon on the sexual abuse of women. There's been a brief nod here and there and many references to how Jesus rescues the abused from their shame, but never a whole 30 minutes on a Sunday morning 
exclusively devoted to exposing the evil of sexual abuse and God's heart for victims. And yet, it's estimated that one in four women and one in six men will experience sexual abuse in their lifetime. And those statistics are probably higher since so many cases go unreported. That means it's very possible that a quarter of the women sitting in the seats on Sunday morning are victims of sexual assault. How much is a little girl worth? Well, the God of the Bible has an answer. He tells their stories. He sees their anguish. And he readies himself to expose their abusers and avenge the crimes committed against them. We simply cannot fully understand the worth of women in the storyline of the Bible without addressing this topic. And there are a few different places we could have gone with this in Scripture, but 2 Samuel 13 is where I feel led to spend our time. If you haven't turned there already, you can go ahead and do that. 2 Samuel 13. To give you some context, this chapter continues the story of King David, who just a couple chapters back experienced the profound moral failure of taking another man's wife, having sex with her, and then murdering her husband or having her husband murdered in order to cover up a pregnancy. And as a consequence of his action, God delivers words to David through the prophet Nathan. And it's those words, that's where I wanna start this morning because it has a lot of bearing on what we see unfold in chapter 13. So go ahead and look with me at 2 Samuel 12, verse 10. It says, now therefore, and again, this is Nathan speaking on God's behalf to David. Now therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah, the Hethite, to be your wife. This is what the Lord says. I'm gonna bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes, and he will sleep with them in broad daylight. The fulfillment of this prophecy is initiated right away in chapter 13, as we begin to see the amplification of David's sins in the lives of his sons. This family is about to implode on itself. And that's what 2 Samuel 13 is primarily about, and I certainly don't want to imply otherwise. However, given the lengthy attention to detail the thorough description of Tamar's innocence and the intensity of the language used to describe what was done to her, we are not out of line using this text in our study on the worth of women. Sexual abuse may not be the main point of this passage, but God is surely saying something to his people about the value of women and the sheer evil of those who oppress them. And here's our main idea today. The Bible does not turn a blind eye to the abuse of women because God 
does not turn a blind eye to the abuse of women. In his justice, he avenges the oppression. In his love, he heals and restores the victim. And in his son, he absorbs all the shame. I'm going to start this morning by reading the whole passage. We don't usually do that, but this is a story, and so it's really important that we get the whole big picture, and then we'll walk, walk back through it and pull out certain things. All right, so I'm going to begin reading 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. Some time passed. David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar, and David's son Amnon was infatuated with her. Your, your Bible might say in love with her. Amnon was frustrated to the point of making himself sick over his sister Tamar because she was a virgin, but it seemed impossible to do anything to her. Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, it's actually his cousin, son of David's brother, Shemiah. Jonadab was a very shrewd man, and he asked Amnon, why are you, the king's son, so miserable every morning? Won't you tell me? And Amnon replied, well, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister also his half-sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend you're sick. When your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare a meal in my presence so I can watch and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be sick. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my presence so that I can eat from her hand. And David sent word to Tamar at the place, please go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare a meal for him. When Tamar went to his house while Amnon was still lying down, she took dough, kneaded it, made cakes in his presence and baked them. She brought the pan and set it down in front of him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, everyone leave me. And everyone left him. Bring the meal to the bedroom. Amnon told Tamar, so I can eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes that she had made and went to her brother Amnon's bedroom. When she brought them to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come sleep with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she cried. Don't disgrace me for such a thing should never be done in Israel. Don't commit this outrage. Where could I ever go with my humiliation? And you, you would be like one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Please speak to the king, for he won't keep me from you. But he refused to listen to her, and because he was stronger than she was, he disgraced her by raping her. So Amnon hated Tamar with such intensity that the hatred he hated her with was greater than the love he loved her with. Get out of here, he said. No, she cried. Sending me away is much worse than the great wrong you've already done to me but he refused to listen to her. Instead, he called to the servant who waited on him, get this away from me, throw her out and bolt the door behind her. Amnon's servant threw her out and bolted the door behind her. Now Tamar was wearing a long sleeve garment because this is what the king's virgin daughters wore. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long sleeve garment she was wearing. She put her hand on her head and went away crying out. And her brother Absalom said to her, had your brother Amnon been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. 
So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in the house of her brother, Absalom. All right, the first thing I want to note is, is that Tamar's worth is highlighted in this passage. Tamar's worth is highlighted. First and foremost, she is made in God's image. Remember Genesis 1? That is the unspoken assumption of the text. And if nothing else was said about her, that would be reason enough for her to be honored, protected, and cherished by the men in her life. But the narrator goes out of his way to tell us more about this woman. In verse one, we learn that she's the daughter of King David. We also learn that she's beautiful. In verse two, we learn that she's a virgin. And the reason Amnon was so frustrated by this is because a virgin daughter of the king uh, would have been protected property. She was set apart. She was totally off limits. She even had a special robe that she wore to signify this prized status as an unmarried princess. The narrator also goes out of his way to make sure we know that she was a righteous woman who revered the law of God. We see this in her words to Amnon. Look with me at verse 12 again. Don't, my brother, she cried, don't disgrace me for such a thing should never be done In Israel, don't commit this outrage. Where could I go with my humiliation? And you, you would be like one of the outrageous fools in Israel. And then verse 16, she says, sending me away is much worse than the wrong you've already done to me. These words of Tamar reflect the words of God. She's calling him out on his sin and begging him to comply with the law of God. The word translated disgrace or violate in verses 12 and 13 is intense in the Hebrew. It's always used of outrageously disgraceful acts. That word fool describes a perverted, godless person. And that is who Amnon is revealing himself to be. If you want to know how God feels about sexual abuse, listen to the words of Tamar. Don't. It's a despicable, wicked act. It should never be done. It's an outrage. It's only carried out by godless fools. So her worth is highlighted. We also see that her worth is threatened. And this, of course, is the heartbreaking, tragic part of this story. First, it's threatened by lust and objectification. The word choice in verse one is really interesting, isn't it? Especially if your translation uses the word love. It says that Amnon loved her. And so you might start out with the chapter and think to yourself, aw. But then you get to verse two. And you see that his love is not really love. It says that he was frustrated to the point of being ill because she was a virgin and it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. Did you catch that? 
When you love someone, you do things with them and you do things for them. But those aren't the prepositions used here. He wants to do something to her. In in his mind, she is not a person to love. She is a body to take. And take a look at the wording in verse 5, paying special attention to the emphasis on Amnon's eyes. It's a little more clear in the NASB translation, so I'm reading from that here. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat. Let her prepare the food, key phrase, in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. The phrase in my sight is repeated again in verse 6. And verse 8 reads this way. So Tamar went to her brother's Am, brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down, and she took the dough, kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. And if this feels creepy to you, it's supposed to. He is staring her down. And the perversion of his thoughts at this point is harrowing to think about. Now, I suppose this is where some teachers would insert the dress modestly so that men don't objectify you talk. Now, there's a time and a place for talking about modesty, but for anyone, for anyone to ever bring that up in the context of sexual abuse and the objectification of women is not just insensitive, it is destructive. And it needs to stop. If that has ever happened to you, I am, I am so sorry. If it has ever been implied that sexual assault was your fault, You need to know that God doesn't say that. Because there is no excuse, ever, 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 for the objectification of another human being. And by the way, this is why pornography in any form, even if it's being aired on HBO, In a hit TV series, it is never okay because it is always dehumanizing. It is always a violation of the image of God and man, and God hates it. He hates it, and so should we in every form that it takes. Tragically, Amnon acts on his perverted thoughts. And I want you to pay close attention to the aftermath. Look at verse 15. So Amnon hated Tamar with such intensity that the hatred he hated her with was greater than the love he had loved her with. Get out of here, he said. No, she cried, sending me away is much worse than the great wrong you've already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. Instead, he called the servant who waited on him. Get this away from me. Throw her out and bolt the door 
behind her. Now, some translations insert the word woman into verse 17. So it would say, throw this woman out. But that is not in the original Hebrew. And it is not there on purpose. He says, throw this out and lock the door behind her. When I get home today, I'm going to do what I do every Tuesday after Bible study. I'm going to make some lunch. I'm going to open a can of LaCroix. I think it's going to be peach pear today, maybe lime. I'm not sure. When I'm done drinking it, when it's all gone and all used up, I'm going to throw it away because it has served its purpose and is no longer useful to me. And that's what's going on here. He basically tells his servant to take out the trash. And I can't think of a more telling illustration of why lust and objectification is so destructive. It turns people made in God's image and precious in his sight into garbage that can be tossed away at will. We don't want to mess around with this stuff. Well, not only is her worth threatened by lust and objectification, her worth is threatened by unchecked power. By unchecked power. Look at verse 1. It says, Some time passed. David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar, and David's son Amnon was infatuated with her. This sentence structure is very meaningful and very telling. We have these two sons of David. One of them is the firstborn and rightful heir to the throne. That's Amnon. The other one, Absalom, wants to be. He wants it, and he wants it bad. And who in this sentence is literally stuck in the middle? It's Tamar. This is a subtle way of introducing the reader to the power dynamics that are at work here. In fact, quite a few commentators believe that Absalom intentionally did not prevent this rape in order to have a reason to kill Amnon. You look at verse 20, it sure does seem like he knew Amnon's intentions. But he's got to get Amnon out of the way if he ever has a chance of being king. Another place we see a power play is in Jonadab's words in verse 4. Look at those again. I guess it's verse 5, I think. Jonadab said that, oh no, it is verse 4. He asked Amnon, why are you the king's son so miserable every morning? You see that subtle reminder? You're the king's son. You're the firstborn. The son of the king shouldn't be depressed. The son of the king shouldn't go without. The son of the king should get what he wants. 
This is a clear appeal to Amnon's entitlement based on his position and celebrity. And I want you to flip back to 2 Samuel 11, back to the, uh, the situation with David, Amnon's father. 2 Samuel 11, I'm going to pick up in verse 4, or verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers to take her. And when she came to him, he slept with her. So here we see this, the, same, the same entitlement in the life of Amnon's father, David. And we have to be careful not to say what the Bible doesn't. But consider the facts. David has all the power. He is the king. Bathsheba has very little. I think it would not be a stretch to say she has zero power. Her husband has gone out to battle, so he is not there to intervene. We know um, from the rest of the story, he was an honorable honorable man. We can... um, gather from her mourning his loss that she loved him very much. And while nothing in the text indicates aggression, it is highly unlikely that this encounter was consensual. There's no way she had a choice, you guys. David sent messengers and took her. He took her to have sex with her. Then he covered it up by having her husband killed in the line of battle. This is the abuse of power. In the summer of 2020, Karen Swallow Pryor wrote an article about the downfall of Jerry Falwell Jr., former president of Liberty University where Karen served as a professor for 20 years. And this is how she opens the article. When is a sex scandal not a sex scandal? When the scandal and the sex are the result of absolutely unchecked power. And she goes on to expose the rampant lack of accountability across conservative Christian institutions and the actual human lives that are being destroyed because of it. When power goes unchecked, she writes, all hell breaks loose. Whether it's Jerry Falwell Jr., Matt Lauer, Harvey Weinstein, or any big name celebrity abuser, whether it's inside or outside the church, the root of the problem is often the abuse of power, when no one is allowed to tell you no, everything and everyone becomes a potential yes. It's yours for the taking. 
And then you and everyone who works for you has to cover it up in order to protect your precious reputation. And it's really tricky when it's a church, Christian institution, because we feel this burden of, we gotta protect God's reputation at the expense of victims. This is how oppressors keep on oppressing. This is how you read stories of 10, 20, 30 years, this guy has been abusing children and women. You think, how in the world? Somebody saw it. Yeah, somebody saw it. But I bet that guy had a lot of power and nobody had the right to tell him to stop. Until someone is brave enough to call them on it these oppressors will continue destroying lives. Now, there's a whole slew of ways that we can apply this. Here's one practical way. Believe the woman who comes forward with an abuse allegation. Believe the woman who comes forward with an abuse allegation unless and until you have a very, very, very good reason not to, like hard evidence. Not so-and-so said, hard evidence. Stand with her. Advocate for her. Know that she's probably risking her whole life to speak up. This is the most painful thing that she has ever endured, and she will likely have to walk into a room full of men and talk about it. And the institutional power structures, both in and outside the church, are often set up to silence and crush her. So know that. She needs you and she needs me to believe her and stand with her. And shame on us if our first thought is, she must be lying, he's a deacon. He's a pastor. He's done so much for this community. There's no way he'd do something like that. He's got too much to lose. If you have been led to believe that abusers look and act like abusers in front of everybody else, you've been sorely mistaken. They rarely do. Followers of Jesus Christ side with the vulnerable, not the powerful. And that leads us right into the third threat to Tamar's worth. And that is the absence of advocacy. In that culture, there was no bouncing back from a rape. The only way to have any kind of life would be to marry your rapist. In fact, I want to take you to an interesting passage in the Old Testament law codes um, you can either listen or turn there with me. I'm going to Genesis 22, verse 28. Uh, did I say Genesis? I mean, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 22. Verse 28 says this, If a man encounters a young woman, a virgin who is not engaged, takes hold of her and rapes her, and they are discovered... 
The man who raped her is to give the young woman's father 50 silver shekels and she will become his wife because he violated her. He cannot divorce her as long as he lives. Now, as trauma-informed American women living in the 21st century, we read that and we are horrified that God would even suggest that a woman marry her rapist, much less command it. But we have to understand that women were property. They had zero rights. They had no inheritance. Their life and future was wholly dependent on getting married, and no man would marry a woman who had been raped. This law is actually put in place for the protection and provision of rape victims and is likely what Tamar is referring to when she says, sending me away is much worse than the wrong you've already done to me. She's appealing to Deuteronomy 22. Tamar's life has been utterly destroyed. Every dream she's ever had completely crushed And there's two men in the story, two men in the story who can step up and advocate for her. Let's see what they do. We'll start with Absalom, verse 20. Here's his response. Her brother Absalom said to her, has your brother Amnon been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. In other words, don't worry about it. Don't say anything and don't worry about it. Keep quiet and don't dwell on it. Move on. Now, he does later avenge her rape by killing Amnon, but it's quite obvious that had very little to do with Tamar. He wants the throne. She was just a pawn in his scheme to get Amnon out of the way. Well, how about David, her father? The king, surely he'll do something. Verse 21. When King David heard about all these things, he was furious. That's it. That's it. Story moves on. (laughs) Anger without action. Even if there was no legal recourse available, and a lot of commentaries say there probably wasn't, the Old Testament law codes were probably not enforceable during this particular time in Israel's history. But even if that's the case, at the very least, he could have confronted Amnon. But there's no indication that there was even a verbal rebuke. One of the commentaries I read said that the abrupt ending of verse 21 is a literary indictment of David's inactivity. The reader is left wanting justice from the king. That's a king's job. It's the king's job. And he's her dad. It's the king's job and it's a dad's job. But that justice never comes. It never comes. 
Instead, her beautiful face and hair are covered in ashes. That special robe distinguishing her as a virgin daughter of the king is torn. And her hand braces her forehead as an expression of profound grief and utter devastation. There is no happily ever after for this princess. Just the words, so Tamar lived a desolate woman in the house of her brother Absalom. And that leads us to our final point. What Tamar needs is a true and better David. She needs a man who will not fail her. She needs a brother who will defend and advocate for her. She needs a savior who will heal and restore the shattered pieces of her life. The most haunting words of this chapter are in verse 16 when Tamar asks, what about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And neither Amnon nor Absalom nor David had an answer for her. But when we set her story in the grand narrative of scripture, what we see is that the true and better son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, does have an answer for the shame of Tamar. He was sent to this earth to heal the brokenhearted, to comfort all who mourn, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes and splendid clothes instead of despair. To all who share Tamar's harrowing experience, he says, in place of your shame, you will have a double portion. In the place of disgrace, they will rejoice over their share and eternal joy will be theirs because I, the Lord, the true King of Israel, love justice. That's from Isaiah 61, 8, 1 through 8, quoted by Jesus, and I think it's Luke 4. I'm reading a book by Zach Eswine called The Imperfect Pastor. It's so good, applicable to any of us. Don't need to be a pastor. In it, he recounts the memory of a girl named June. And he writes this. He says, June was known for putting out. At McDonald's, June was drunk. Hey, Zach, she called out. Want to hang out? As June winked, slurred, and stumbled, my friends smiled. Get her in the car, one of them said. Get her in the car. I didn't. I wonder where June is now. Has she ever come to know the gracious, dignifying rest of the pornless eyes of Jesus? What a question. Let me read that last sentence again. Has she ever come to know the gracious, dignifying rest of the pornless eyes of Jesus?
more importantly, have you? No man will ever see you like he sees you. Not as a body, but as a person. Not as an object, but as a treasure. Not seeking to take, but longing to give. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for uh, getting us all through that. It's a hard passage. These are hard things. Made harder by the fact that they're never talked about or addressed. I thank you that there are winds of change. And I pray that we might be a catalyst for that. Make us women who are willing to bravely stand beside the vulnerable, the oppressed, the abused. When everybody else says we need to keep this quiet, we don't need to make a stir, we got to be careful because what if there's a bad review on the internet? May we never, ever sacrifice a precious life on the altar of a church's reputation. It's not okay. And I pray that you would call us to be bold defenders of both men and women who are treated in a way that is not consistent with your heart and your desire for your people. May we be vessels of your mercy and your love and your compassion. Help us to be good listeners. Help us to be um, women who don't jump to conclusions. And I don't want to be somebody who's, who's angry with no action. Call us out, Lord. Make us... Make us the sisters of the true and better David. May his heart be reflected in our heart. May his love be reflected in our love. Make us like Jesus. It's in his precious holy name we pray. Amen. Mm.